The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. Today we're going to take a glance at some forecasts for next year, but first, as always, some background on who you're listening to. I'm Guy Clapperton, a technology journalist, event MC, and media trainer with 30 years experience. You might have heard me or seen me on the BBC occasionally, read some of my books, or seen me in The Guardian, New Statesman Tech, and elsewhere. I go to a lot of conferences and hear experts talking about their forecasts about the decades to come. I'd rather use my 30 years experience as a commentator to discuss what's likely to happen later this year, early next, actually there isn't much of this year left technically, and the action we need to take now. So I came up with the Near Futurist concept. Do have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, I would if I were you, do have a look at the showreel on the site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk. That's nearfuturist as one word. Or get in touch with my agent, whose details are, of course, also on the site. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or wherever you download from. And if you're new to the show, of course, you're very welcome. Well, that's more than enough about me, so let's get to my guest for the show. Her LinkedIn profile says she is a research and insights professional based in New York, or from where she's speaking, and has experience in both the US and European markets. She is a creative thinker with a lifelong interest in the fine arts, food, travel, and design. Well, we can't have all the food, we're at distance. Her position is Strategic Insights Manager at Global Web Index, and she is Verna Sikri. Verna, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Excellent. So perhaps you could start by telling us a bit about Global Web Index and what you do. Global Web Index, we are an international market research company, just syndicated data set. Um, We survey people online across 46 different countries. And our objective is really to build a full picture of the digital consumer, their lifestyle, their attitudes, their behaviors, and increasingly their relationship with technology and the internet um, and how that is kind of changing. Okay, now I understand that uh, your remit is broad and there's a whole team of you, but we have limited time available. So I'd like to zero in on just a few elements of your forecast for the next 12 months. Uh, For example, I write and see a lot about robotics in the customer journey, customer experience and so forth. And I understand you think that things are going to swing the other way. Uh, Can you tell me a bit more about the return or resurgence perhaps of the human factor? Yes, the more, I guess, futuristic trend that we're starting to see. um, And it's essentially that the human experience and the human touch is kind of making this this resurgence in sort of a premium way. Um, And what's driving that? There's a few different things that have kind of shaped this happening right now. So over the last maybe like 20 to 30 years, the rate at which technology has developed has been really, really rapid. And especially in the developed world, right? It's proliferated into kind of every different facet of our lives. It's part of how we work, how we go to school, the entertainment that we consume, um, healthcare, all of these different fields increasingly are being mediated by technology and by screens rather than by people. And we're spending more time on screens than ever before, really. Um, consumers globally spend more than like six hours per day online. So we're really plugged in. We're really kind of wired. And it's hard to remove yourself from that when technology being the outside world, not just for an entertainment perspective, but for communication with your family and the ability to do your job and the ability to go to school and to access healthcare and navigate your way around with maps and transportation. So it's become so crucial um, in our lives that we're starting to see a kind of a shift in consumer attitudes. 
people are starting to get a little bit more, I guess, uncomfortable and push back a little bit with how much technology has proliferated. And we've been seeing this kind of gradual incline in attitudes like technology is complicating their day-to-day -day lives a little bit more than they used to. And that's really um, where that kind of motivation is coming from for people to start to seek this back to basics kind of concept a little bit and go more for human experiences and the human touch and how that can, I guess, enrich their lives a little bit more in the way that technology has maybe made it a bit more difficult. It's interesting, though, because I find that when I'm in front of my phone, which is very frequently, as you can imagine, I don't necessarily mm -hmm. perceive that I'm doing something on the phone. Earlier today, I had a tea break and I was uh, doing a crossword. Now, the fact that it happened to be located in a newspaper which was coming to me through the phone didn't matter to me. In my mind, I was doing a crossword. When I'm using the Kindle app, I'm not thinking I am going to use the phone. I'm reading a book uh, and I might, you know, Spotify. Yes, it comes to me through the phone, but I'm listening to music. I don't actually perceive the technology as it's almost as if it's not there. I'm surprised that that attitude isn't uh, coming through a little bit more. You say people are actually wanting to be in front of people most of the time. Well, it's not necessarily that they want to be in front of people most of the time. Um, it's just that, as you say, technology has become almost like an extension of ourselves a little bit. We do things that we don't necessarily associate it with being a screen. The screen is just the mediator to the experience. But being around screens and technology and having that layer between us and the end goal, the end experience, can be taxing on people, I think. And that is that is maybe the result that we're starting to see is that having this technology mediating every single experience that we have is a bit taxing and people are starting to realize that it's not necessarily the best thing for your physical health um, and your mental health and sometimes your relationships to be so connected all of the time. So there is more of a concerted effort um, by people now to kind of pull back a little bit from that and to try and shift gears a little bit and to go more in the direction of human experiences than we had been seeing for a long time. Because for a long time, the trend was just technology, efficiency, let's put in screens where people would normally be working because it's, you know, it's much cheaper, it's much faster, you can do more, it's more precise, which all of those things are true. Um, but they leave a bit of a of a lasting effect and something to be la starting to understand and can't necessarily articulate. There's just a sense of maybe discomfort that's there. Uh, is this really any more than the honeymoon period coming to an end, do you think? Yeah, that's interesting. I guess that that suggests that things will change dramatically afterwards, but I don't think that they will. Technology and AI are going to continue to be very big parts of our lives and they will continue to facilitate how we how we work, how we travel, how we use healthcare, how we consume entertainment. So it'll just be a, a challenge to reconcile that. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I don't think a honeymoon period suggests that things are going to finish afterwards. Uh, you know, not all marriages end in divorce. I think we could, uh, you know, we, we can, uh, yeah, mine, for example, hasn't, which is nice. You, you could have a honeymoon period where we're obsessed with our screens for, say, 10 years. And then afterwards, the uh, the fact that, well, I've seen research to suggest that the uh, reduction in blue light doesn't actually do anything to help you sleep. I've seen suggestions that the mm -hmm. eye strain does still happen. And so, as you say, there are physical as well as psychological effects of uh, screen addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I stand by my image of a honeymoon period, but I do take your point that you know things will not be the same again afterwards. That's that's entirely entirely fair. Um, one thing I noticed uh, that was in the briefing I received, you described the human experience as being a premium issue. I just wonder if you could get, elaborate on that a little. Sure. So this kind of links back to the fact that 
because technology has developed so rapidly, it means that access has become, in the developed world at least, kind of near universal. So everybody has, you know, a smartphone of some kind. Most people will have access to a laptop or some sort of computer in, in the modern developed world. It's not really anything that is exclusive or um, associated with being of like a higher income level anymore because everybody has it. And when everybody has it, that's not any sort of marker of status anymore. What does become a marker of status when technology is everywhere and when technology is actually cheaper than having a human there and having that real human interaction is the human experience becomes what is a marker of something that you can achieve when you have more means and more money. So I think a good abstract is to think about schools um, and increasingly in schools, a lot of kids have screens that have replaced some of the kind of human to human contact of teaching. In some of these more like, I suppose, expensive kind of private schools, you see a lot of them on the West Coast, there's this shift in mentality of going back to basics and it's a screen free environment. And there's a real emphasis on, you know, outside play and no technology and socialization in kind of the old fashioned way. But not everybody can access something like that, whereas everybody can access things that are mediated through technology because that's what's cheaper, that's more efficient. So that's what I mean when I say that it's kind of becoming a bit of a premium. You have to have a certain level of, of means to achieve, like what, is, what has become the more rare, expensive thing, which is to have that human to human interaction for your services and for your experiences. Okay, so uh, let's accept that people are starting to react a little bit against uh, a, a perhaps a robotic or automated experience and uh, would like to uh, work with people when it's possible, when it's appropriate. I'm just wondering if uh, there's actually an underlying trend here and that people are reacting against a bad automated experience. I mean, I dealt with some human beings and you'd swear they were artificial intelligence or artificial unintelligence or robots. On the other hand, only yesterday I was uh, looking for a place to go and work remotely. Put my query into a robot help widget on a co-working space. I knew I was talking to uh, the robot at the time. But then at some stage, it started getting very precise with its answers, suggesting that he had a mate up the road who might be able to help because he didn't do drop-in uh, sessions, etc. And I realized that by that stage, I was talking to a person. I didn't know and still don't know at what stage the human being took over. But because it was a good experience, it didn't really matter to me whether I was talking to the robot or that the human had taken over because it required a bit more precision. It got the job done. I'm just wondering whether people are actually reacting uh, to a bad experience rather than to the idea of uh, technology itself. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Um, I think bad experiences may have been more common a few years ago. AI has developed so much better now um, where to reflect on the story you told, sometimes it is hard to tell, am I speaking to an actual human or am I just speaking to a very, very well-designed AI? And I think when people have good experiences with AI, you know, that's great. And that fuels our constant desire for more of that. And there's this kind of push and pull with people with technology, right? That is what leads us to kind of progress and keep going in this direction. At the end of the day, people want convenience. Um, they want things cheaper. Um, and AI and technology, they hit the mark on that completely. They facilitate us to have experiences or to ask questions and to have our needs met in kind of a a constant immediate basis that um, having a human might not be able to do. So people want these things. It makes life easier in a lot of senses. But there's this ambivalence, this kind of push-pull of like, yeah, this technology makes my life easier and I want the convenience of it and I want this to be cheaper for me. But the constant experience of that and once that is in every facet of your life, 
does that kind of, I guess, impact how you view human experiences and how you view human relationships? And even for younger people who in the society that they grow up in will be so much more mediated by technology and by AI, will it affect um, their socialization with other people? That's kind of some of the bigger questions. Mm, that's right. The other thing I keep hearing is that uh, we're in retail, at least, they're going back to a form of person-to-person -person service so that people actually know their customers. Uh, that's something we hear in the UK quite a lot, and the high streets dying and all the, the uh, uh, larger retail outlets are suffering. We've lost a few major names in the last few years. Is that the same stateside? And you, do you hear the same thing, that people want service rather than, uh, you know, they want the one-to-one -one service? Yeah, I think that the one-to-one -one service is a real differentiator um, for retail in-store. A lot of retail has obviously gone online and e-commerce is the most competitive way to shop when it comes to convenience and price. So that has really kind of led to the decline of, of normal shopping as we know it. But that one-to-one -one experience and having that, that tangible experience of shopping and the attention and the interaction is something that cannot be replaced. And that is where I think retail can really thrive in, in differentiating, differentiating itself and having a, a real like niche role in the, the overall shopping experience, especially for luxury. That's a big place where this whole element of the human experience can really shine. The other thing about retail, of course, and one of the things I talk about in my keynote, I did one of these only last week, is that, and I appreciate this isn't one of your specialist areas, but I'm sure you know the moves. Uh, we seem to be moving towards a cashless society, although nobody's actually decided to dispose of cash. Uh, first of all, do you feel that's true stateside as well as in the UK? I may be speaking for a very small niche here. Yeah, I think that's true just to varying degrees on a pretty global level. Um, if you look at the Asian markets, they tend to be more advanced when it comes to things like cashless payments um, and using payment apps and cryptocurrency more so than um, countries in Europe and the U.S. On a, on a general basis. But I think globally, we are moving towards a cashless society for sure. We're not there yet, but it's definitely coming. Sure. What are the drivers behind this? I've been thinking about, say, the size of the US. I know that you're not quite so fond over there of contactless uh, payments as we are over in the UK, partly because mm -hmm. the infrastructure and making all the, the, the underlying cabling work is a nightmare in a territory mm -hmm. that large. So I'm just wondering, you know, what's yeah. driving this? Why are we heading towards this cashless society? It's definitely kind of a mix of consumer demand for more convenience and more ease of use and a better, I guess, kind of day-to-day -day experience doing their things like shopping and making payments. And that is working and progressing in tan technologies progressing. So people will always want things to make their lives easier um, and to make interactions and just daily obligations faster and, you know, more painless. And that is kind of why technology exists is to facilitate people's needs and their wants. And people are willing to kind of give up a lot for convenience and for ease of use. Um, things like data privacy and data security haven't been as much of a concern to people because of the benefits that they get from things like using various internet and social media services, access payments and all these things. It's the convenience factor outweighs a lot of the concerns a lot of the time. And as you said, in the U.S., it's hard to have achieved the same level of progress because the infrastructure is, you know, it's hard to build that kind of infrastructure with such a landmass that we have here. But once that can kind of catch up, I think the explosion of contactless in the U.S. and a lot of other countries is really inevitable. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's probably right. You've raised uh, an issue I was about to already. There's a whole privacy thing. I mean, a lot of people I know in the UK say that they worry about in-store loyalty cards because they don't want shops tracking what they're buying. Um, mm -hmm. And now we're saying cash may be on the way out. I mean, 
is privacy effectively dead for the uh, the longer term future? Do you think? Yeah, I think it's on the way out. <laughs> um, so traditionally, when people have used even just like credit cards, which are obviously dated now, you've trusted these big financial institutions, these banks, and these credit card companies to maintain a level of security over your data, and that's been finally done a good job. But it's been limited to these few institutions. With the movement towards cashless, um, and even especially with the movement towards cryptocurrency, which a lot of people see the future of payments, even in our day-to-day, not just for, you know, like shady online transactions. That's how a lot of people see the future going to be. Um, You have so many other players that will have access to some degree to our spending data. Um, You know, with cryptocurrencies, especially, you may have the social media companies or the firms that facilitate the movement of transactions online, Um, like Facebook with the Libra coin. That obviously was a big issue of concern for a lot of different countries that have their own currencies and and just people generally. Um, You have governments that will potentially have a view of spending patterns in addition to, you know, the terminals wherever you're purchasing anything. So there's so many other people um, or other parties that get involved in the kind of data sharing when it becomes this this cashless society that it will be really hard to truly understand how private we can be okay i think we'll leave that particular topic there but uh, what other headline changes we are you anticipating over the next 12 months or so yeah so a lot of the kind of developments and trends that we think are going to happen in the next year are around retail and commerce there's been a lot of talk about how online and offline retail have been integrated in various different ways. Um, Obviously, most of things have moved online, but now there's kind of been a shift to companies that were born online or through social media now wanting um, an actual physical footprint, um, which is interesting that it's kind of going the other way around a little bit. So there'll be kind of a renaissance of retail and a reinvention of that kind of relationship between the online and offline world. The second big thing we're seeing also related to commerce is this development of mobile commerce and on-the-go purchasing. So there's a lot of just like dead time that is associated with people's commute and people's travel, whether you're like standing on a subway platform or if you're driving an hour to commute into work. And we're going to see that this kind of dead waiting time is going to be capitalized on in a better way by marketers and brands to get people kind of more involved in how they can think about making purchases or even, you know, research and make actual purchases during this time. So like voice technology in cars will be a big one that helps develop that for the the driver commuter. Kind of more interactive out of home advertising, especially, you know, on subways, on the underground, bus, you know, bus stations and bus shelters, that kind of better form of out of home advertising with more technology and more kind of creativity um, and interactivity will help make that kind of more interesting and engaging. So those are two of the big kind of ones we're seeing. And uh, finally, perhaps you could tell uh, the listeners uh, how they can find out more about you and uh, Global Web Index and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So if you visit our website at globalwebindex.com, you'll be able to read um, some different blogs that other analysts and myself have written about these kinds of topics, as well as topics related to media, marketing, um, technology, of course. Um, And for the topics I've discussed in a bit of detail here, we've actually just released our Trends 2020 report. So these are covered in much fuller detail, um, as well as a, a number of other ones that are really interesting and technology focused. So I would encourage anybody to take a look at those if you're interested. And those are available from the website now, are they? Yes. Excellent. Verna Sekui of Global Web Index, thank you very much for joining me. 
Thank you for having me. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. I'll be back in two weeks' time as always. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk. See you in a fortnight. Music